Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump's nominee for CIA director set up a black site for torture in Thailand. I'll talk with the attorney of the first detainee tortured there. A new play explores immigrant identities in Chicago. We'll meet the playwright from Through the Elevated Line. And on Global Notes, our look at international music, a record label that blends beats from the African diaspora. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Gina Hapsel's record on torture will get a good going over at her confirmation hearing to be CIA director. The first person tortured at the black site in Thailand that Hapsel set up was Abu Zubaydah, who the CIA incorrectly thought was a high-ranking al-Qaeda member. Zubaydah is still imprisoned at Guantanamo, and we're going to talk about Gina Hapsel's involvement in his torture with Joseph Margulies. He is Abu Zubaydah's attorney, and he was also the counsel of record in Rasul versus Bush, the Supreme Court case that affirmed that Guantanamo detainees do have the right to challenge their imprisonment in the courts. He's a professor of law and government at Cornell. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Thanks for having me on. One of the things that always strikes me about Abu Zubaydah's case is This is the first person the CIA tortured, and right out of the box, they did not get an al-Qaeda guy. They got somebody who was a jihadist of some sort, but they got it wrong right off the bat. I know. Isn't that revealing? You'd think that with the first guy, they would vet it up and down the line. Uh, And in fact, they did. As best we can determine, they believed in good faith. It's not that they were malicious that he was a person who was associated with al-Qaeda. That's what they thought. But they were just mistaken. But because they had been so careful and because he was the first, when he would protest his ignorance of things that they thought he should know, they just took that as evidence of how good he was at resisting interrogation. And so they ratcheted up the severity of it. It's just a test case, a picture perfect example of why torture programs go wrong. Now, I was reading an account of this by Ray Bonner, the investigative journalist who's won Pulitzer Prizes, and he wrote something about a year ago in ProPublica that went over everything he could find, all the books that were written, all the releases that have been out. And he comes away with a really damning portrayal of Hapsol. And I mean, she was responsible, apparently, for how much torture these people got. She was the sole person who could decide how much they got. And she let Abu Zubaydah get quite a lot to the point where he nearly died. And she mocked him. She watched him while he was being tortured and said to him, good job. I like the way you're drooling. It adds realism. I'm almost buying it. You wouldn't think a grown man would do that. Uh, She is really something. Well, you know, I have a lot of respect for Ray Bonner. And I'm not saying he's wrong about any of this. But several things in what you've just described, the public record is more complex than that. So, for instance, on whether she had the control or the authority to stop the torture, 
the Senate report, the Senate torture report says that the person who was in charge at the base doesn't identify her had the final say. There is, however, another CIA cable that says two people had to have the final say, one at headquarters and one at the base. And there's reporting just today in The New York Times that indicates that at least according to a CIA unnamed official, she wasn't even there when Abu Zubaydah was being tortured. So my point is that the record is really ambiguous, and that's why we have a confirmation process. There is certainly indications that she had a supervisory presence at the first site when my client was horribly, horribly tortured. What her role was, uh, whether she approved it, whether she ever tried to stop it, whether she mocked my client, we actually don't know. The story about the mockery that you've just described, that appears in James Mitchell's book. James Mitchell was the guy who actually conducted the torture. It's not in any official documents. Haspel's never talked about it. It may surprise people to hear this, but I'm actually taking a wait and see attitude. And I want to hear what she has to say about these things. I don't want to judge her prematurely. Do you find it unusual that it's all these years later before we're getting anyone to say anything on the record about this? Do I find it unusual? No. Do I find it disappointing? Yes. Do I find it an indictment of our constitutional system and the transparency of American government? Yes, profoundly. Uh, Do I find it surprising? No. So you've never talked to your client about this? Oh, of course I have. Absolutely. And what's he said? I just can't tell you what I I can't can't tell tell you that. That's the problem. (laughs) You should know better than that. Of course, I've talked to my client about that. (laughs) You know, on on Morning Edition, uh, Mr. Rizzo, who was an attorney for the CIA, was questioned. And he was talking about how this was a legal practice at the time, and these were very difficult times, and people were under a lot of pressure. And what do you make of that line of defense, that this was legal at the time, and these people were following orders, and they had a tough job to do? Um. We ought not mince words. What was done was torture. The Bush administration contrived an interpretation of the statute that no one finds credible in order to create the appearance of legality. But it was torture then and it's torture now. It's wrong to say that, well, maybe it wasn't torture then, but it is today. No, it was always torture. That doesn't change the other part of what you said, which is, yes, they were under a great deal of pressure. Yes, they believed that Abu Zubaydah was someone other than who he is. And the one piece that's missing in the public condemnation of Gina Haspel is her current view. I want to know not just what she thought and did in August of 2002 when my client was tortured, but what does she think now? After they realize what a mistake they made, after they realize what a mess they've created as a result of the torture scandal. Now, maybe she is every bit as unapologetic as former Vice President Dick Cheney, who is just enthusiastic about it and says, if I had to do it again, I'd be happy to do it again. On the other hand, maybe she takes the position like John McCain. This is one of the CIA's darkest chapters, and I hope we never go down this road again. I'd like to know that. Well, it seems like one of the things we do know is that she was pretty involved in destroying the tapes of your client's torture. 
And Mr. Rizzo on Morning Edition said that that was because they were worried about CIA agents getting out in the public realm and them being targeted by terrorists. But it seems rather obvious that it was because the torture was so horrific that they don't want these tapes seen. Uh, She did that. Yeah. First of all, as to this uh, preposterous justification, we don't want identities coming out. Everybody who's ever dealt with tapes knows that you can obscure the identity and voices of people on tapes. It's done routinely. So obviously they could have done that. This game that we were trying to protect identities is just transparently disingenuous. And they certainly shouldn't be allowed to get away with that. And destroying the tapes may have, in fact, been more serious than people are saying. There was a court order. A federal judge had ordered the CIA to preserve the tapes at the time they were destroyed. So if she destroyed the tapes or participated in the destruction of the tapes knowingly and with knowledge that this order existed, then she was in contempt of court. On the other hand, again, this record is complicated. Jose Rodriguez, who was the head of the counterterrorism center at the time, says he is the one who gave the order to destroy the tapes. And all she did was draft and sign the document that affected his order. Now, I don't know. She's never talked about it. My view is let us not assume the truth. Let's learn the truth. Let's get the documents. Let's ask her the questions. It's a long time later, but at least let's find out. And I'm very curious what she has to say. You know, it seems like Dianne Feinstein, who oversaw the release of the torture report from Congress and seems to be familiar with her record, did not want her in charge of the clandestine services at the CIA, but seems willing to listen to her here as the head of the CIA. And some people think she might be making a compromise and think, well, Hapsel's better than Tom Cotton or somebody else who might come along. Do you think in the end a political calculation will be made and it won't really be about what really happened? Look, you're talking about who's going to come a senior political official in Washington, D.C. and asking, do I think that'll be a political calculation? Well, yes. Uh, So naturally, judgments will be made and bets will be hedged. I think that the Senate is close enough and that there is enough doubt circulating about just what she did and enough unanswered questions that one hopes there will at least be people there who will say, look, maybe in the end I would vote for you because maybe as director you'd be qualified. But clear up these questions. Let us do our role as the greatest deliberative body in the world, which is what the Senate calls itself. And let's try to sort of resolve what your role was in these two critical questions, the supervision of the site where two people were tortured horribly and the destruction of tapes that were ordered to be preserved by a federal judge. It's a simple matter. Let's get to the bottom of it. And then you would prosecute if there was criminal intent on this destruction of the tape. Somebody would prosecute in theory. I've always believed that Jose Rodriguez should be held in contempt of court. He, by all appearances, knowingly violated a federal order. Uh, Whether that would ever happen, no. Uh, If it didn't happen during the Obama administration, it's certainly not going to happen in a Trump administration. And he's very proud of it. He brags about it. And I think there has never been a reckoning about that. You just don't thumb your nose at a federal judge who ordered you to preserve something and you destroyed it. 
I know that Abu Zubaydah has been almost about to testify at different hearings at Guantanamo, and uh, he never quite gets there to the hearing doc, and people don't know what he's going to say. Are you thinking that someday people will hear what he has to say and he will get to a hearing? We hope so. (laughs) Believe me, he's not being silent on our account. Uh, The government wants him silent. We have wanted him to be charged. He's never been charged in the military commission system. We have asked that he be charged over and over again. I mean, we want the fact that he is dramatically different from the person they thought he was when they were torturing him and when they were justifying his torture on national TV. We want that to be known. We want there to be hearings. We want there to be a courtroom where we can make these arguments. Uh, But they have studiously avoided charging him. He is in that category of people. They just want to disappear. Joseph Margulies is Abu Zubaydah's attorney. Zubaydah is imprisoned at Guantanamo. The CIA incorrectly thought he was a high-ranking member of al-Qaeda, tortured him at the black site set up by Gina Hapsel. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the situation. Not at all. Thanks for having me on. A new play explores immigrant identities in Chicago. Coming up after the break, we'll meet the playwright from Through the Elevated Line. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a new play at the Silk Road Rising Theater Company. It's called Through the Elevated Line. And the playwright is Novid Parsi. He's with me. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. As is the founding artistic director of Silk Road Rising, Jamil Corey. Nice to see you. Great to be here, Jerome. Thank you. You have a long relationship with Novid. Uh, What is it? So Novid was a playwright, and we did not know him in that capacity. We got to know Novid as a theater critic and also a theater journalist. Uh, so both reviewing plays for Time Out magazine um, and a, a very, uh, I think what became a, a very sort of famous, uh, seminal uh, contribution to the uh, conversation about diversity in Chicago theater, um, uh, an article called Why is Chicago Theater so White? Um, and and Novid interviewed us as part of this conversation. So it definitely helped propel, um, you know, the the discussions about representation and expanding representation. Uh, But yeah, that was the context in which we knew him. Uh, And then fast forward several years, um, our associate producer, Corey Pond, uh, sends me this email, you have to read this play of Novid Parsi's that that I just read. And, um, you know, so I, I printed it. And one night I'm thinking, well, I'll, you know, I'll read the first act and then I'll go to bed and tomorrow I'll continue. Uh, I could not put the play down. Uh, I was I was so captivated, so taken uh, by this story. So now, of course, I think of Novid uh, almost solely as a playwright, and I'm very grateful that he is. 
Navid, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, make yourself whole here. Yeah, so as Jamil said, I have been a playwright. Um, that preceded my theater journalism, and I was briefly a theater critic for a couple of years, as Jamil said, at Time Out Chicago um, about over a decade ago. And uh, since then, I've been an arts journalist writing about theater in Chicago and other arts in Chicago. Um, and uh, for several years now, that's coincided with my playwriting. Um, and now the latest play, Through the Elevated Line. Is your playwriting an effort to make Chicago theater less white? Um, it doesn't come from that intention, but it's, uh, I think, coincidental that as an Iranian-American, I'm interested in uh, stories that are not just about white characters. Um, so, yeah. Tell us about Through the Elevated Line. It's, um, uh, it has to do with immigrants and identity and uh, where they fit in here. Yeah, my play Through the Elevated Line is about a young gay Iranian man, Razi, Razi Gol, who arrives at the Chicago home of his sister, Soraya, who's been here for about 11 years, and her husband, Chuck, who's a uh, white American guy. Um, the backdrop of uh, the play is the uh, Chicago Cubs season of 2016 as they're vying for the World Series. And over the span of that baseball season, we come to know these three main characters and the tensions that rise among the three of them and the uh, the profound impact, I would say, that Rossi's presence in this couple's home and in this city has on all of their lives. What is it about Rossi that shakes things up? Um, he is, you know, a fish out of water, um, to put it basically, but also uh, he's, it's about the contrast between everything that Rossi brings with him and represents um, and between that and the life that Soraya has uh, crafted for herself in the States, um, he's lived as a gay man in a regime uh, that's, I would say, less than friendly to queer people, Iran. Um, and then he arrives to the Chicago home of his sister and, and realizes that over the past decade plus that they've been apart, she's lived a very different life. She's, be she's gone to college. She's gone to medical school. She's now, when we meet her, a dermatology resident. Um, so uh, and there's, it, there's the contrast between those two siblings. There's also that contrast between Rozzy and Soraya's husband, uh, Chuck, who, the, uh, who is a uh, South Side white guy of Irish descent that he claims proudly. Um, he is, a, I would say, a bit of a bull in a china shop. Um, so there's uh, lots of sparks that are flying. It sounds like the people who are characters in this play are different layers of the immigrant story. And they're... Usually in the media, we port portray immigrants as good or bad immigrants. Right. How did you address this? Yeah, so the idea of the play came to me in early 2016 when the anti-immigrant, I would say our, latest, our country's latest version of the anti-immigrant rhetoric and sentiment uh, were really uh, heating up. And I was thinking about the ways that we tend to think about immigrants uh, or place them into one of two buckets, uh, depending on our own political alliances. We think of them as either the good immigrant or the bad immigrant. We put them up or we put them down. Um, but either way, it's a categorization. And I was interested in humanizing rather than categorizing these immigrant characters by imagining these two immigrant characters as on the face of it existing on either side of that divide, right? You've got Soraya, the sister, who seems to be on the face of it, the good immigrant. She's ticked off all the boxes, marriage, profession, education. 
And on the other hand, you have Razi, who is certainly not a model immigrant. He arrives without money, without education. Um, and he's certainly sympathetic, but he's by no means a saint. He's a deeply flawed individual. But I think over the course of the play, because we come to know them as individuals, that distinction between good and bad immigrant really gets complicated. And we come to see how it doesn't really do justice to their lives or really anyone's life. We're talking about the play Through the Elevated Line. It's at the Silk Road Rising Theater Company. And uh, the playwright here is Novid Parsi. Jamil Khoury is the founding artistic director at Silk Road Rising. Uh, you, you know, there's a something you discovered as you were writing the play was that it was a little bit like Streetcar Named Desire. And mm-hmm. you, uh, you kind of worked with that. Uh, explain yes. what happened there. Yeah, very early on, again, early 2016, when I was thinking about this play, um, I, I, two things about it made me realize that I was uh, conjuring up Tennessee Williams, A Streetcar Named Desire. One was that classic triangle between the two siblings and the one sibling's spouse um, and the tensions within that tri- triangle, between each couple within that triangle. Um, and the other thing that made me realize I was thinking about Streetcar was as I got to know very quickly my main character, Rozzy Gole, as someone who is very much an unwanted traveler. He's caught between two worlds, uh, wanted by neither world, accepted by neither world, rejected by both, and, and also two worlds that are in opposition to each other, um, or at least often seen as in opposition to each other. In my case, in my play's case, uh, the worlds of Iran and the United States. He's caught between those two. In Blanche Dubois' case, the Old South, or her fantasy of it, and and this kind of new, more brutal world that Stanley represents. So in those two ways, I realized I was, I was uh, thinking of, dreaming of A Streetcar Named Desire, and I decided to embrace that influence wholly and, and make the play my own. Novid Parsi is the playwright of Through the Elevated Line at Silk Road Rising through April 15th. Jamil Khoury is founding artistic director. And you have a special for BEZ listeners who might want to see the play before April 15th here? We do have a special. Um, within the next 24 hours, uh, if you go to our website, silkroadrising.org, and use the coupon code WBZ, you get 50% off. So silkroadrising.org, Through the Elevated Line, WBZ, and uh, we hope to see you at the theater. That's terrific. And people are, are pledging and get, getting uh, chances at a Hamilton ticket, but this is a surefire chance to see theater <laughs> at a 50% dis- discount. Uh, WBEZ at uh, the Silk Road Rising Theater Company pre- box office there at the on the internet site. And uh, Through the Elevated Line is the play. It's there through April 15th. Thanks for joining me, Jamil Khoury from Silk Road Rising and Navid Parsi, the playwright. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank, Thank you. you so much.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and it's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. And today we are going to, we're joined by Daniel Musisi. He is a professional DJ and engineer here at WBEZ. Uh, his DJ name is Daniel Moose, and it is nice to see you, Daniel. It's good to be back, Jerome. Now, the music we're hearing in the background and are going to hear for the rest of this segment comes from a record label called Soul Powered Sound, and Soul as in Sun, S-O-L, Power Sound. Yep. And what is the origin story of this label? So this label was started by three DJs in Washington, D.C., and one percussionist. And they would DJ around town, do a lot of parties where they played global dance music and had a really great following. And it led to them starting their own label. And oh, well, actually, I guess first they started to produce some remixes of, on their own. And then they decided, hey, let's let's start a label and get more of these remixes out into the world. So where are they taking their music from? Where is the mixing happening? Um, well, I mean... As DJs, they're getting music from all different record stores and places around the world. They're, some of them are less or more organic, and some of them are more remixy and more house music driven, um, with more of a kick maybe and more bass. Um, but then when they do their remixing and tap artists to do stuff, they're often pulling from original tracks that are very organic sounding, and then just kind of adding to those and giving them a little bit more of a club feel. And the songs do they come out sounding a lot different, the, the music, the remixes. Yeah, they often do. So yeah. uh, wh- let's hear another one. Okay, well, the next one we're going to hear is, I guess we're going to, next one we'll hear is Gaspar Nali, um, which is, well, it's featuring Gaspar Nali. It is Abale, and Abale is the shortened title from, well, actually, the original title for the original track is Abale Ndikuzeni. Thank you for I, saying that. <laughs> hopefully I pronounced that relatively correctly. Um, and this track is by a Malawian artist called Gaspar Nali. We're going to hear a little bit of it now. Um, he plays this instrument called the Bobotani, which is this giant three meters long one-stringed bass guitar and he plays it with a bottle and um, yeah we can hear a little (laughs) bit of it now So that sound, that boom, 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 boom in there, that is a gigantic acoustic instrument, this six-foot-long, I'm looking at a picture of it right here, one-stringed bass. Yes, and he plays it not only with an empty bottle, he also uses a stick. And I guess what he's doing is he's sliding it up and down the string and getting different tones that way. So... Uh, that's terrific. And these guys have taken this music and uh, remixed it. Yes, so... Um, Actually, just to pop back, the first track we heard, that was a track that was created by these DJs, Soul Power All-Stars. This track is by a guy named Arup Roy, the one we're going to hear next, and he remixed this Gaspar Nali track we just heard. Um, he Basically, there's a video that went viral on YouTube 
um, with about 17 million hits. Mark saw that, and that's how Mark is one of the label owners at uh, Soul Power Sound. He saw it and was like, oh, it would be great to remix this. He got Arup Roy to remix it, and here it is. talking with Daniel Musisi about some of the music from the label Soul Power Sound. And I like both of those. I like the original and the, the remix. Yeah, they're both great. I, I really love this remix because it's just got that like house music feel, a little almost techno vibe to it. It's just got that like Afro tech feel, you know, with the original organic sounds mixed with more current dance sounds. So... How popular is this out there on the dance floors? You're DJing out there around town. Can you lay this on people at the Chicago Athletic Club on March 16th, and <laughs> which you are doing a gig at, and, and they will be happy? I will be there, yes. Um, I This is the kind of thing that you, you can use at particular times of the night, and it can be really effective. Um, and also, there's just a lot of parties around the really around the globe, but even just nationally, just across the country, that focus on global dance music. And this is the type of track that like those dance floors eat up. And I mean, we're just listening to little snippets of stuff, but um, we're like diving in at the like three minute mark in the case of that song um, of a like, I want to say nine minute track. But um, typically the way to hear these songs is sweating on the dance floor there's a DJ that's mixing and blending from track to track. And, you know, these songs all have long intros and they're very dynamic. Things are happening. They're taking you from here to there within the track. So here we can just hear a snippet, but people can look these guys up and, and get more if they want. So, What's another track here? Another track that we've got is um, Janfa Magni. And this is the Bosque Afro Disco mix and it's by a band called Orchestra Orchestra Polyrhythmo Kotunu and that band is from Benin West Africa Bosk is the remixer and he is out of Boston but now he's actually working out of Medellin Colombia and um this track luckily the soul power sound guys know the manager of this band, Orchestro Polyrhythmo, and so they have a remix relationship with these guys, so they've done some remixes for them, and you know, we're able to get this Bosque remix licensed by them, so let's hear some of that. Thanks for joining us, Daniel Musisi, for Global Notes. And it's super fun music, and people can see a lot more on the Soul Power Sound website. They have their vinyl there, and all the love that vinyl is back. And 
uh, that's what people are mixing on, so that's terrific. Yeah, it's great. And they do have digital also. And Jerome, it's great to be here. So glad to be here. And Thanks. it has been great having you, Daniel. You are one of the most beloved people at the station. And I can't believe you're leaving. You are leaving the station. And <laughs> I, I am. And everybody's going to miss you. And we will have you back, though, for Global Notes. You don't have to leave us. Thank you very much. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.